Good morning and welcome to this Euractive debate on chemical risk management. What is the role of the essential use concept under reach authorization and restriction? Our program today is supported by the Nickel Institute. I'm Brian McGuire. If you want to join us on social media today, hashtag EA Debates. EA Debates, our social media team uh, will respond there and amplify the message. And if you want to send us questions today, uh, log into Slido or you can scan there on the screen. And the hashtag is EUC, hashtag EUC. Send us your questions there. We'll put those to the panel during the course of the discussion. We won't wait till the very end. We're going to use uh, your questions through the course of the discussion. So you can send those right now and we'll bring them to the panel uh, very soon. So our program today reflects that uh, on October 2020, the European Commission adopted its chemical strategy for sustainability. The CSS is part of the EU's zero pollution ambition, a key commitment of the European Green Deal. The EU's chemical strategy aims to better protect citizens and the environment and boost innovation for safe and sustainable chemicals. To work towards the objectives of the EU's chemical strategy, a reform of REACH was also announced. With respect to uh, risk management, the Commission proposed to ban the most harmful chemicals, namely chemical substances meeting specific hazards criteria in consumer products, allowing those chemicals only where the use is considered essential. This is referred to as this essential use concept. Joining us to discuss the chemical strategy for sustainability and the definition and application of the essential uh, use concept, uh, we have with us uh, Otto Lina. He's the senior expert at the REACH unit and uh, DG Grow at the European Commission. Uh, Tatiano Santos, uh, Head of Chemicals Policy at the European Environmental Bureau. Uh, Marco Susnik, he's an uh, advisor to the uh, Secretary General on Chemicals Policy at SME United and Senior Advisor on Chemical Policy at the Austrian uh, Economic Chamber. And we also have uh, Martina Bianchini, she's President of the International Fragrance Association. Thank you uh, for joining us and taking the time to be with us uh, this morning. I'm going to ask each of our panelists just to kick off with about 60 seconds of an introduction on their, their key message uh, for today. Otto, can I start with you? 60 seconds. Yeah, well, uh, the essential use concept can help us uh, in particular uh, to deal faster with clear cases where uh, I think we are dealing with political priorities or negative priorities. Uh, it can also help us to support decisions on less clear cases, but there I think the problem is, uh, is mainly that we should avoid uh, getting lost in detail and uh, it is very important that we also provide uh, clear pathways uh, for substitution for industry to avoid uncertainties. So I think that's, uh, that's roughly and uh, very briefly uh, where I see the uh, value added of the essential use concept. Uh, we were having just a, uh, can you hear us okay? Are you able to go ahead? Go ahead, thank you. T 60 seconds, Tatiana. Yes, I wanted to also um, raise the issue of why essential use concept. Uh, this was brought, uh, brought forward by the chemical strategy to help uh, phase out the most harmful chemicals and allow systematic decision making. So in our view, this is the right approach to increase the protection of people and the environment and also to speed up the phasing out of the most harmful chemicals. Perhaps just to open the, break the ice, saying that let's not mix uh, apples and oranges when it comes to the essential use. It's not about the importance or how convenient specific chemicals or products are, but about when the, the society can accept very hazardous chemicals in everyday products. So 
the ban uh, is for the most harmful chemicals in products, except when they are truly necessary for health, critical for society, and there are no safer alternatives. Thank you, Tatiana. Marco, 60 seconds. Thanks, you. And good morning to everyone. Well, basically, what we are the most worried about the essential use discussion. I would like to continue where Tatiana has stopped. We are not talking according to what the Commission has published, the study on the essential uses. Uh, we are actually talking about essential, can be only something that is being used for the treatment of severe health conditions and for the basic functioning of society, like water, food, and shelter. This is basically what's our starting point for the discussion that's in the study on the essential use concept. And considering that we are quite a well-developed, highly industrialized um, society, this is relatively low level. Um, and I think we really have to fine tune that because health, we really um, risk to lose a very important tools. Chemicals are tools. We think that they can be used safely. They have contributed to great technical achievements. We live beyond 80 years of age. We have a child mortality that is at absolute historical low. That's also because we have uh, done a good job within industry. Um, we, for example, have non-invasive surgery, although PFAS, highly controversial chemicals, are using in that uh, product. However, I'm not saying that we should keep everything as it is. I think that over the last decades, a lot of things have improved. Safety of chemicals has improved. Um, I think that substitution plays a very important role in the modern chemicals management, and uh, we should continuously improve risk management uh, for chemicals. But finally, I think that chemicals in the end are tools that I think as a chemist, and we can use most of them safely. Thank you. Thank you, Marco. Martina, over to you, 60 seconds. Yes, in the fragrance industry, our vision also is that fragrance is a safe and essential part of life. And uh, we, um, we work uh, with policymakers for 50 years. And we have, in addition to working on regulatory matters, we have a safe use program in place, a product stewardship program for the fragrance industry that um, ensures good risk management. I fully agree that the most harmful chemicals have been have to be uh, substituted over time. But the question is, you know, how harmful or is hazard really harm? And we will probably come to that later. So when we look at the essential use concept from the perspective of a practitioner and an industry which uses a lot of mixtures, including natural ingredients, uh, where which contain <laughs> hazardous components, uh, then to us, this essentiality concept is, uh, is very, very complex. And we also believe that it is not yet mature enough for wide-scale uh, legislation okay. across different policy areas like it is pronounced uh, and, and spelled out in the CSS. Thank you. Martina. So we are worried and we're concerned uh, about the concept. Uh, there are certainly good things in it, but when you when the rubber meets the road and you look how is it going to impact your business, then uh, you see a lot of hurdles that still okay. need to be clarified. 
Let me bring this back to Otto then. Otto, if you can scope out for us with uh, some a uh, little bit of detail about uh, what essential use means and uh, how this process is likely uh, to develop in terms of being refined, uh, as Marco said. Okay. Are you still still muted, Marco uh, Otto? Okay. Can you unmute? Let's see. Do we have sound? Okay, you need to keep trying. Um, if you can un try and unmute again, Otto. Not working. Okay, we'll come back to you in just a second and then. Okay, Marco. Uh, Marco, the same kind of approach. You know, how do you, from your perspective, how do you see essential use being defined and how do you see this process unfolding as well as, as it uh, is more uh, fully understood, Marco? Now, as I said before, I, I think what we have so far on the plate, so basically in the essential use study, uh, which, which uh, is basically commissioned by the European Commission, um, this is very prescriptive. So basically, we are talking about severe house conditions and basic functioning of society. So basically, it's not even clear what's a severe house condition, for whom is something severe, what's the basic functioning society. This is very subjective. And, and in general, I think that essentiality is a very subjective thing um, where you have very difficult elements going in, like culture, religion, a time, situation you're in. Uh, I, I think these are the most four complex parameters, uh, which in the end somebody will have to define, where, where you will need a group, where you will need a, a decision-making process, which in the end, I think, won't be easier and won't be less bureaucratic than what we have now in the uh, reach authorization if this is not handled with care and with a pragmatic approach. The objective is to give some kind of certainty to business so they, they can invest, they know what they're dealing with, the regulatory processes is faster. You don't think that's going to be the outcome of this process, Marco? We are worried, uh, personally I'm worried that it won't be. Because, look, what is essential for me? Is this necessarily essential for you? And I'm coming from, from, from a point where I, ha I belong to a very small language group and we had a lot of fights about uh, is our language essential or not over decades. And basically, if you looked to the majority population for a very long time, this wasn't essential for no one. But we had to fight for it. So basically, uh, that's the problem. It can be essential for me, but it's not necessarily essential for you. Okay. And then in the end, who decides? And where is minority protection in that sense? Cultural protection, religious protection. Okay. And we have okay. examples. I'm going to bring back to Otto. Uh, sound is kind of essential for this as well. I think we've got Otto working again. Uh, Otto, just to, to recap uh, on this again. So essential use concept. You know, what does this look like in terms of its current definition? Where are we going to go down the, the road as this evolves? I hope you can hear me now. Uh, okay, perfect. Uh, so essential use concept consists of two criteria. One is political, uh, and that's the question, is a use critical for society or is it necessary for health and safety? So this brings in an element that we didn't have before. And the second criterion is the absence of alternatives. That's something that we've been working in REACH for, for a long time. 
uh, uh, and uh, yeah, so both uh, criteria go together. Uh, I think the criticality allows us to to quicker uh, say, okay, this is really a, a use that we need for society, so we can act faster in in, in giving derogations. But also on the other side, when we uh, uh, realize that something is not really needed for society, we are not going to run any risk. Uh, so we tell people beforehand. Uh, so this is not a use where you can apply for a derogation from a restriction or from an authorization. I understand that you're, is this the precautionary principle in practice or is this something more rigid? Of course, the precautionary principle plays a role. That means uh, if uh, there is nothing that really is at stake for society, it's better not to run a risk in the first place. So this is what, what is meant there. Of course, there are a lot of cases which are more in between. That is going to be more tricky. That's where we're discussing a lot about how to organize those cases. But at least for the clear cases, it really allows us to be faster. Okay, Otto, I'm, just a couple more quick questions on this, and then we'll go to, to the other panelists as well, and just to scope this out. So when I hear political, I hear uh, 27 member states in a room going, well, you can ban it, but we need it, and uh, phosphates, for example. You know, so the idea that we can agree a technical term uh, for some of these uh, products because we have 27 different industries. Uh, is a single market approach going to work in this or are we looking at a long term, and by long term I mean 20 years or more, uh, of a process to uh, really establish what essential use looks like? And we can talk about the Montreal principles, uh, Montreal Protocol for example, which was from 1989 to 2019, I think was, uh, it, that was the scope of time they used. How is this going to play out in terms of politics and timeline, Otto? Well, it's it's not a concept for the long term. Uh, it's something that, that really can apply as soon as we have the revised uh, uh, REACH regulation in place. Uh, maybe it's easiest if I just try to illustrate, for example, if you look at PFAS uses, uh, if we have uh, uses to, product, uh, to produce hydrogen, that is something which is uh, clearly essential. And I think you will find a large consensus. Uh, and, and those are the things that we can move faster towards derogations if we need that. Um, uh, for ski wax or for uh, frying pans, I think it is clear that those uses are non-essential because there's neither something that is really critical for society that is at stake and we have the necessary alternatives. So we are going to act fast here in going to ban uh, those uses. And there are a lot of uses which are in between. Um, for example, PFAS in semiconductors, uh, nobody can say that there are no alternatives, but also nobody can say that you can uh, uh, already replace today uh, all uh, uses of PFAS in semiconductors. So that is going to be the tricky area uh, where essential users can help, but we should not expect it to be uh, the panacea who, uh, from one day to the other, allows us everything to be clear. Okay, thank you. Tatiana, in response to uh, what Otto's laid out there, do you see this as a workable policy or do you see too many political uh, potholes along the way where you, know, you end up with a more complex process and becomes less efficient um, than is intended? How, how do you see this play out? Do you think it's viable? Well, uh, devil is in the details. Um, of course, the intention is actually to simplify and speed up decision-making process um, and if it's applied properly, we still have to see what is the proposal by the Commission. Um, we truly believe it will help 
to, to simplify and speed up regulatory uh, decision making. Uh, but of course, um, it depends on how it is applied. Where, where do you think the, the good elements of this are? Where do you think the, the bottlenecks could be, Tatiana? Well, I, I think the, the criteria uh, proposed uh, by the consultant uh, is, is, is rather good in general. We strongly agree um, with the, 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 the criteria that uh, case by case is, is needing, uh, needed, um, to allowing all uses in the essential sector. Um, we agree that uh, the condition, the, it's not a, um, a free pass to polluters. So as Otto said, yes, maybe today uh, we must consider a, a use essential, but it doesn't mean that it will be essential forever. Uh, so of course it, the concept has to evolve and have to uh, revise whether uh, alternatives become available and also uh, to push uh, companies not to feel like, okay, I'm done, I don't work on safer alternatives anymore, but invest on a, a substitution plan and overall minimize exposure to the extent of technically possible, uh, because we are talking about the most harmful chemicals. Uh, so I, I think that's, that's really important. Um, and if applied well, can really uh, help uh, and protect, uh, better protect people and the environment. Perhaps just to add that um, about this uh, political decision-making and so on, um, let's not forget who is currently taking these decisions and these decisions on whether uh, uses of very harmful chemicals and harmful not just because they are hazardous, but also because exposure is, is, is there. Um, in this is industry who is currently taking these decisions, very regrettable uh, decisions of using very harmful chemicals in childcare products, in cosmetics, in everyday products uh, that we as a society cannot accept, for example, that there are known uh, chemicals that cause cancer in childcare articles. <laughs> uh, so, of course, there are more uh, difficult cases, but at least for the clear-cut cases, as Otto said, there is no question. And it okay. is the society who has to decide what is essential to, to us, not the companies marketing chemicals or using chemicals in everyday products. Thank you. Uh, Marco wants to respond, and we're going to come to Martina. Marco. Okay, thanks. Um, I think that uh, there was something mixed up because basically we are saying uh, what Tatiana said, free pass for polluters. So I, I don't see how the connection should be between essential use and polluting or non-polluting. These are two different discussions. I can have a non-essential use. If I use it safely, if there is no exposure, I won't have any pollution. On the other hand, if I have an essential use, but I don't take care, I will pollute. So I think these are two different discussions. The essential use concept won't necessarily solve pollution. You will need something else, and that's risk management. And here we are coming from the point of view that if something can be used safely without exposure, with a proper risk management, that should be equivalent to the essential use. Okay. 
Thank you. Uh, this is what I wanted to lead on to uh, with Martina, actually. Martina, so there's also a calibration to be had here as well. So, uh, you know, two things, whether something's an active substance, which uh, has a higher risk, um, um, then simply uh, dosage levels, you want to put it that way, the, the volume of uh, a particular chemical which is in a product as well. So if it's a high level, maybe you have higher risk, and if it's low level, you have lower risk. Do you think that uh, the essential use concept uh, will be able to moderate between these different levels, or do you think it's a, a blanket approach, uh, which is uh, uh, the risk here? Martina? <laughs> Well, from what we, it's a new concept and uh, it's untried, yes, it's just now evolving. And what we did in the fragrance industry, we, we wanted to answer this question that you just raised, yeah, to what extent uh, is the dosage important in this? And uh, we commissioned a business impact assessment study with Ricardo and the, the report we asked them to do a qualitative assessment of the concept of essential use on the fragrance industry and how is it going to impact us. And they, uh, they had a couple key conclusions. One was, you know, the, there's still a lack of clarity on the concept uh, and it's going to have more negative impacts on the sector. And the default position, unfortunately, is going to be that you will be deemed as non-essential or your, your materials will be deemed as non-essential if they have uh, uh, hazardous properties and then you have to prove essentiality and here is what marco said the concept is very subjective in our case fragrances they contribute to cultural and to her cultural heritage yeah, fragrance have historic significance. They are ingrained in cultural traditions. And, uh, and now there's new research that shows fragrances, they, they give uh, a lot of benefits to people's well-being beyond their presence in consumer goods application. So this is called olfactory modulation of the mood. They, they help with stress, they help with anxiety. And more and more studies show if you have a positive scent, it increases to your well-being and your overall, you know, feeling of clean and and your uh, your general, uh, you know, well-being. So the question is, how is uh, the Commission going to legislate on these cultural and intellectual aspects that that are so important? And Thank then you. the dose, yeah, yeah. just the Go last on the dose. Yeah, it's absolute uh, critical to us because and this is a concern that we have in the CSS and uh, and also in essential use is that uh, the dose is no longer uh, considered. Yeah, everything is shifting. All the risk management is shifting from the likelihood of harm uh, through the exposure uh, to now the intrinsic properties of the molecules. And we think uh, that that's going to be very complicated for the future. We need other forms of risk management. Thank you, Martina. Otto, lots to bounce off uh, there. Let's start uh, with dosage levels as well and uh, how subjective this could be. Uh, how do you see it? Mm. Well, I think it's important to distinguish between the essential use concept and the restriction. Uh, the essential use concept is is a tool to kind of take decisions uh, uh, 
uh, on which uses uh, we need to be uh, more strict and on, on which uses uh, we need to see uh, the societal advantages of the continued use of substances. Uh, this is without prejudice to doses. Uh, I think in restrictions we will always work with doses and also the existing uh, application of the generic uh, uh, restrictions uh, starts with doses. So everything that is there really in traces only uh, is, is not necessarily concerned by bans. Uh, that's one thing. And uh, Martina also mentioned the cultural aspects, which are also part of essentiality. So I don't exclude that those will play a role in the implementation also uh, with respect to, to fragrances. But this is, of course, a discussion uh, which still needs to take place and which which I cannot uh, preempt at that stage. Thank you. Although I wanted to talk about uh, the economic aspect in, in terms of what could be essential as well. Uh, because, you know, it, the idea that you can technically replace something, but at what cost? So how will economics factor into this decision-making process as well? Like semiconductors is a fairly good example as well. You know, if, if we had a, a global crisis with semiconductors, you could foresee that um, replacement materials uh, could be used there, but again, you would increase the cost and, and slow uh, production and uh, the value chain would just be completely disrupted. So where, how does economics play in, in terms of uh, the proposed calculations? Order. Yeah, well, this is about the second criteria. This is about availability of alternatives. And uh, in order to be an alternative, any alternative must be uh, technically and economically uh, feasible. Uh, now, uh, what does technically and economically feasible mean? It does not mean that the alternative must provide acts absolutely the same level of performance. And here also the criticality plays a role. So the two criteria interact that means the more uh, critical um, for society or necessary for health and safety uh, a use is the less will a loss of performance be acceptable and vice versa that means if there are things that are not really uh, very highly necessary for society we also must accept that there may be a loss of performance of the alternative so even if the frying pans are not exactly as good in anti-sticking, uh, we, we still think that we need to change to the alternatives. Um, same thing on the economic feasibility. Uh, it, of course, we cannot ask, uh, um, for example, um, yeah, tooth fillings to be all replaced by gold. I think this will not work. Uh, but but uh, nevertheless, uh, we can also not start with the assumption that the alternative is as uh, economically uh, advantageous uh, as, uh, uh, as, as the original use, because otherwise, uh, logically, the alternative would already uh, be the winner on the market. So uh, we must accept a certain level of price increase. Maybe there are job losses, but I think we, in, in all that, we shouldn't forget that uh, every um, change also brings business opportunities. And I think that is very often forgotten in the discussion. So we're not only closing down uh, productions, we're also building up new productions, and those are the productions of the future. And that can help us to bring innovation, and that can also help us to create uh, uh, competitiveness of European companies in the future.
Good. I was going to come to innovation just a second, so I'll bring Marco in for that in a moment. But I wanted to just to follow up on what you, you were talking about, the different criteria as well. Is it going to be like a scoreboard? Is there going to be an evaluation criteria where uh, you know you have cultural elements is worth 10 points, the economics worth 10 points, the technical is worth 40 points, and so like a scale out of 100. How is this going to look in terms of evaluation? Because it, it just it doesn't seem to me that there's a level of consistency where business can look and say, look, you know, we're okay on the technical side, but culturally we're a bit weak. Economically, we're fine today, but next year, you know, mining is going to uh, be a fraction of what it is today. Prices are going to go up. How how are you going to calculate, calibrate in a way which is transparent and efficient for business uh, to read? Otto. Um, sorry, I, I didn't get, uh, <laughs> I thought this was to Marco. No, no uh, sorry, uh, I think, uh, well, uh, it's, I, I think we should give up the idea that on the, um, on uses which are less clear, uh, and can you hear me? I'm sorry, I... Perfectly, it's fine. I have the impression, okay, okay, fine, sorry. Um, uh, we should give up the idea uh, that uh, the European Union and the Commission can decide everything in, uh, also on cases that are, that are less clear that where, where the decision is really technical. So I think it's very important that we uh, uh, distinguish between the political level where the Commission and uh, the European Union needs to take its responsibility in taking decisions. Do we need a certain use or not? So that is not something that can be decided on the technical level. But when it comes to the alternatives, I think it is very important that we delegate uh, this task to the experts and uh, that we, we rather deal uh, with packages rather than having the idea that we will decide on each and every use separately. Thank you. Marco, just come back to the innovation element that Otto mentioned as well. Is innovation likely to be enhanced as companies search out better alternatives, cheaper alternatives, safer alternatives? Clearly, there will be some market disruption, but do you see this in a positive way or negative way? I think it will depend on the case. So I think there are certainly more opportunities. But then you should also differentiate between, I'm coming now from the SME sector, I think that SMEs will have the hardest time. So you will need to kind of find also uh, public money to, to, to subsidize those companies in, in the transition. Um, I wouldn't see it black or white. Um, however, when you look at the essential use concept as such, uh, if, if it's not implemented in a way which gives legal stability and right now we are with the chemical legislation in a very unstable uh, situation where we talk about most hazardous chemicals and substances of concern and we talk about substances of very high concern and basically uh, for, for for now coming from the SME side this is this is confusion and this is not something that's uh, supporting innovation so I would say that the general discussion around the chemical strategy for the SME sector is rather going away from being supportive of innovation because of all those different political discussions that we are having. And one of them is the essential use discussion. So I wouldn't say that essential use per se will foster uh, the development of, of better chemicals. It will just, from our point of view, uh, create additional administration in many cases, which then will bind additional resources. 
which could be used in 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 um, in innovation, but they can't because they have to be uh, there to investigate in supply chains, to to talk to authorities, to read uh, documents. So, for example, we are talking about the PFAS restriction recently, which has I think one and a half thousand pages. We have to navigate through to find your uses, then you have to talk to your supply chains. Uh, we are trying to now the PFAS example is a very good one to find out how the supply chains are interwoven and this is the reality for 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 smes in practice and and that's so far very 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 difficult and i think we can improve here but i'm not sure yet how and and certainly smes will need support okay and that means also simplification in legislation and simply uh, funds we're gonna take some questions now you mentioned pfas we have a question from gary on this as well uh marco I'll go to you first uh, how do you think this concept may apply to the proposal for restriction on PFAS? I, I, I think uh, knowing the process that actually the essential use concept should be in the PFAS restriction um, and is not, it's going to be very hard for me to answer that, but I think it's going to be a bit confusing. Okay. Because that's it. I mean, we are now having uses, for example, for, I take one example, F-gases. F-gases are in the scope of the PFAS restriction. At the same time, we, we have some exemptions. At the same time, we are negotiating a new F-gas regulation in the ordinary legislative procedure. <laughs> and if you look at the PFAS restriction now, this is contradicting to a certain extent the F-gas regulation. It, it simply doesn't make sense from the uh, from 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 an administrative uh, saving concept. So you, you're regulating double the Let's cost auto. resources and F gases as a means again. Let's put this back to auto. Um, uh, Gary's question: How do you think this concept may apply to the proposal for restriction on PFAS and in the context of what Marco just said? Mm-hmm. Well, the PFAS re- uh, restriction is being elaborated under the current uh, REACH rules. Uh, which do not explicitly refer to essential uses, but uh, there is the possibility, of course, for for, uh, derogations, which may de facto be uh, based on essential use considerations. And I think that's what's what's actually happening. And that's why uh, the dossier submitters are given longer transition periods to things that we would consider as critical for society, while they giving short periods for for those things that are less uh, uh, less critical in the end and where alternatives uh, are uh, available so uh, yeah but uh, I I think we also need to take into account the the time because uh, I think the restriction will take time and who knows maybe the uh, revised reach regulation will already be in place when uh, decisions are going to be taken on the on on the PFAS restriction Thank you, Otto. Okay, uh, let's go to Tatiana and question from Claudia. And Claudia asks, how would a lack of knowledge of environmental impacts be dealt with under the essential use concept? Tatiana, what do you think? Well, uh, it is definitely a general lack of knowledge on impacts. Um, But at the same time, uh, we have enough. We have enough information uh, to take action. Um, the EU-wide uh, U- human biomonitoring uh, project has found alarming levels 
of very harmful chemicals in our bodies. Um, we have found uh, uh, 17,000 hotspots of uh, PFAS uh, across the EU uh, countries um, in terms of uh, human exposure, uh, 100 times higher um, levels than the guidance values. So <laughs> I would say we know enough uh, to, to take action. Thank you. Uh, okay, Martina, I'm going to uh, a question from Arthur Vandenberg. Um, it's related to the same kind of element you're talking about later. So uh, Arthur says, in complex objects, substances are not uh, used only for their technical function, but also for the level of performance or a combination of functions. And I think fragrance goes to, to this element as well. How the essential use concept will take it, how will the essential use concept take into account the level of performance and the combination of properties for the assessment of alternatives? Uh, what do you see in, uh, uh, so far? Uh, are, you, are you content more or less with the, the essential use concept in terms of level of performance or is this still too ambiguous um, and the level of performance is, is not well understood yet? Martina. Yeah, uh, so the, the fragrance industry is a highly innovative industry. We spend 8% of our turnover on research and development, which is a lot. And uh, so then you look at the question, is the essential use concept innovation stifling or is it innovation enhancing? And we have this business impact assessment report done, which actually can be downloaded on our website ifrafragrance.org and in there it uh, it gives the data on our industry and you know for us it's we we are going to be losing likely 11 percent of the workforce and you know to the assessment of alternatives and performance sometimes there are no alter alternatives aren't readily available so for us, you need, it means um, if we would have an ingredient in a formulation that would need to be substituted, uh, then often you need to see fragrances as a combination of science and art. And not always can you substitute specifically also with the naturals. Yeah, naturals, what is the alternatives to naturals? So, and they are complex mixtures, natural complex substances, and uh, it's very difficult to engineer out a part that uh, is not intentionally added to these uh, substances. So, uh, yeah, performance of alternatives is difficult, um, although it is in the context of innovation, it's happening all the time. Yeah? I mean, companies innovate and they are bio-inspired, by the natural world, and then they look at what they can take, you know, from there, and uh, what can you uh, learn, get the recipe from nature, scale it up, and uh, then uh, produce it. Because the consumer uh, wants these products, and uh, for them, fragrances is the differentiator. The scent okay. is actually a preference driver for consumers. Let's build off that a little bit with another question. Otto, uh, you take this one. So, Veronique says, how about a company like Alessi, who make beautiful articles, uh, often made to high, of high-end stainless steel to display uh, in the home? 
that is not essential but many consumers wanted? Will they have to do with lower end materials which make these types of articles less sustainable? Otto. I think the question that you're posing is not an easy one. Uh, first of all, I think uh, uh, we would definitely w uh, expect also uh, uh, products from Alessi uh, to be uh, without uh, the most harmful chemicals. Uh, uh, in, in certain cases, there may be a performance loss. I think that is uh, certainly understood and maybe also design loss. Uh, but uh, I, I don't think that we are going to take uh, this to the extreme. So I, I, I think you will see uh, Alessi uh, uh, still in future as well. Imagine the abolition of Alessi and the European Commission would go down too well. Uh, uh, you don't want to go to extremes of this, but how do we gauge where we are on that? And we'll come back to this similar type of question I asked earlier. Oh. How do we gauge uh, where these criteria fall. No, are we going to have a sliding scale? You, are, what's, what's the approach that's going to be taken which will be well understood by industry order? Hmm. Well, uh, I think, uh, as I said, uh, I think essential use is, is mainly to help the clear cases. Uh, I think in, on the less clear cases, I think they are, the essential use can help to a certain degree, but uh, it's, it's other things that will, uh, will play on those. Uh, I think we need to learn that we shouldn't get lost in details. Uh, and uh, when Marco said that uh, SMEs needs, need help and guidance uh, to find uh, solutions, well, yes, uh, I absolutely agree that this is important, but we shouldn't expect the Commission to tell SMEs uh, on each technological uh, issue about what they can do or what they can't do. I think uh, where we really need to find the solution for the complex cases is in the cooperation between companies. Uh, and, and I think big companies and alternative providers can help SMEs much more than we could do or that ECA could do. So I think it is triggering that cooperation that that will help uh, uh, finding uh, the solution, uh, getting the innovation, and also getting the predictability uh, that is needed uh, for that uh, process uh, to happen. Okay, I want to come to Mark in just a second, but I'll just finish on this while we're on Alessi. Uh, you know, is, is this a good example of where there could be an issue with the, 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 the component that's used in the manufacture of, of the, the product? but that the state matters, so that uh, you know, it's a stable state, state or an active state. Is this a, uh, how is this evaluated uh, in the proposal as well? You know, are we, and we talked about dosage earlier, it's a similar kind of thing. You know, one product in one sta state is not necessarily um, going to impact the consumer in a different format. Otto. Uh, sorry, I missed the question. Can you please repeat? So, sure. So just if you take a product like Alessi, just this high finish stainless steel, you know the safety component of this in terms of risk management, you know, it will vary depend a product will vary depending on uh, the actual physical state of of uh, the component. So if it's a finished product, does it pro uh, does it provide a, a level of risk to the consumer? 
um, which is the same as uh, an unstable uh, component, which is going to be an ingredient in the final final process. So, you how how does the the, the proposal for essential use measure this? Uh, like raw ingredients, core ingredients, and the finished product, they're not necessarily the same thing in terms of risk to the consumer. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure whether I fully grasp uh, uh, the issue. Uh, I think everything that has to do with uh, with the safety of a product, uh, that is something where the safety has, has priority. Uh, an example I like to quote is uh, the safety of roller coasters. Uh, so that is something that has has no compromise. Uh, we, we are also not going to discuss whether roller coasters are necessary or not. Uh, I think there, uh, I think loss of performance is no issue. But when it comes to design, and even if it is a lessee, uh, and there is a substance in there uh, that uh, that we think uh, is is not desirable for society as a whole. Uh, then I think also Alessi will need to, to make uh, a number of compromises. But uh, probably we, we can only discuss the reality if, if we really see the case. Okay, I'm quite happy for you to ban roller coasters. If you want to do that, just go ahead. That's fine. Um, Marco, let's go back to you. You wanted to follow up on an earlier question as well? Yeah, thanks. Uh, it was the question that was uh, asked to, to Tatiana. So I think that was the lack of impacts. If, if data, if data, if there is data lack of on the impacts and how the essential use could contribute there, and I, I think if you really apply the essential use, that should be seen independently. Because if I have lack of data, I, I shouldn't be on the market because of other reasons. And if I have the best um, data set for a substance and it's not considered essential and is the most harmful chemical then I should be prohibited according to a central use concept. And I think that shows the complexity of that whole discussion, that only the essential use, having only the essential use as a main criteria is going to be problematic. And this is exactly where we are coming from, also saying we also need a safe use. So if something can be used safely, if there is a most hazardous chemical uh, in, a, in an article, so for example, I'm thinking about discussions we had around crystal glass, Crystal glass has very often lead, but there is no exposure. So basically this is even exempted from the REACH registration. Or when we think about, I'm going now to the ROS, uh, ROS regu uh, directive, we have um, organ pipes. So for music, there is lead inside. This is also used by consumers. We have lead and there is no doubt, this is a reprotoxic substance. But I, I wouldn't leak on that, however, playing an organ, I'm, I'm not worried about that. And here I'm coming now to the SMEs and going back to the essential use study where it's going to be very problematic. What we've seen in the study that basically in the ROS, we actually have experiences how long such derogation processes take. And this is, if I remember right, Otto, please correct me. It's at least one year going up to one and a half to two years such a process to identify, to assess an exemption, a derogation from the ROS directive. At the same time, what also is clearly said in the study, that the participation from SMEs is factually zero. However, we have more than 99% of the companies in the EU which are SMEs. So we indeed have a data gap there. We have an awareness gap. We have a problem. 
So we need to, and I'm not only talking about funds or that the commission goes uh, and, and helps SMEs. I'm talking about developing a system that somehow gets SMEs in. I know that we have to do as SME United that as well. And we are working on that. But on the other hand, we also need more simplification in the legislation. We need to Thank find you. a way how to get them in. Okay, we'll talk about simplification in a moment. Uh, Tatiana, you wanted to reply also. Go ahead. Yes, uh, there were several comments about consumers uh, wanting uh, products uh, even uh, containing most harmful chemicals. I think the main uh, reason why there may be a perception that consumers want products is because they don't know that these products contain the most harmful chemicals. Uh, I tell you that if I knew as a parent that uh, a, a, a pacifier contained uh, endocrine disruptors, I wouldn't want it. <laughs> and uh, what is true is that consumers want safe products and we want 100% of certainty that products are safe. And this is something that uh, companies cannot uh, provide this certainty. And that's why we, we fully uh, embrace the precautionary principle and the generic uh, approach. And there are an endless list of examples where uh, industry uh, considered that products were safe and then they were found not to be that safe. You, you just need to look at the restrictions uh, list where the, the EU authorities and, and the scientists have agreed uh, that we were at risk. Uh, uh, and, uh, a very good example is the issue of bisphenol A, you know, uh, that was considered as safe in uh, food contact materials for for many 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 years and suddenly the the European Food Agency reduces the safe uh, limit by 20,000 times which means that we were all at risk actually for a very long time so the the the, the safety also changes as uh, science evolves and knowledge evolves and this is something extremely important and finally um, regarding um, the, the essential use uh, concept, how it's going to uh, destroy businesses and so on. I think uh, it, it is, it's extremely important to, to it, for me, the essential use is really applying uh, common sense. And it's the common sense that has not been applied in, this, in, the, in the past. So it, it provides guidance to, to these companies that didn't apply. I, I used to work uh, in trade unions and we were working with companies to replace uh, the most harmful chemicals in um, industrial processes. And we always invited companies to uh, ask very basic questions on whether do you really need this very toxic chemical? Uh, and is there any other way to go on with your industrial processes without it? So these are very basic questions that have not been properly replied by companies uh, in the past. So we need them to reply these questions before they put these chemicals in the market and uh, allowing uh, people uh, to, to use them. Thank you. Marco, you want to reply? Um, I would like to quickly reply that basically this is also a very important issue for us. I mean, it's not just about consumer protection, it's worker protection. And this is uh, most of our members are workers are users of chemicals are not registrants of chemicals 
And I, I would like to point out also something which I think scientifically is not correct, what you said, Tatiana, that 100% safety. We want 100% safe products because at the same time you said that safety changes when science evolves. And this is where I'm with you. With 100% safety, I can't be with you. We always will have a risk. Or at least we will never be able to prove scientifically that something is not there. And But what I said at my initial statement, that risk management is evolving. And this is very important. That we as industry take the responsibility to evolve in the sense of risk management. But I will never commit to 100% safety because this is impossible. Okay, I want to bring us to other, other important point, isn't it? Is that the, the permanence of a decision, whether positive or negative, uh, simply won't exist. There, there is a flexibility to be had within the essential use concept where uh, the, the process, you know, as knowledge increases, the, pro, the decision can change. You can receive a derogation or you can have a derogation uh, removed uh, accordingly. Otto. Yeah, well, absolutely. Uh, I think what we what we need is to have clear pathways, substitution pathways, which uh, allow industry to adjust, uh, to move to alternatives. I've been in, uh, visiting a paints company uh, recently, and uh, I think that clearly showed that they have been ma making a lot of business uh, from replacing uh, substances uh, in, in the past, uh, like the solvent-based paste, uh, paints, and uh, they are now making a lot of business with the alternative alternative and uh, the the important thing is just that we design this transition phase from the current products to future products in a way uh, that uh, industry has predictability they can cooperate and I think that helps SMEs actually most to get the cooperation from other companies to get ideas from other companies uh, to to make new business uh, uh, by uh, grasping the opportunities that that transition phase brings what doesn't help is just to to come with a, a very quick uh, uh, ban that leaves uh, companies without solutions and at the same time we should also not defer those bans because uh, that will mean that those who have uh, brilliant ideas, they can't make business with this, that idea because uh, the clients tend to be conservative and rather buy the things that they know they work. So here it's it's about finding the right balance and it's also uh, about uh, being creative, about getting more uh, cooperation between the companies going. Thank you. Martina. Yes. <clears throat> uh, just to add on this debate, it's important that uh, clear pathways are there, transition pathways are there, and the but the, these need to be done in collaboration with the business and cannot be 100% uh, prescriptive. And you know, someone said, you know, 100% safety and zero risk, you know, they are mathematically impossible. Uh, but what is important in this? is that safety comes first and that you know whatever we do has the right science and is science-based and scientific integrity really should underpin uh, continue to underpin all our policy making in the future and you know we discussed many times this hazard versus risk debate and if the dose and the exposure are uh, you know should be 
left aside because in the spirit of simplicity. But when you look and when you project that, uh, you know, we're losing a little bit this uh, concept of Paracelsus yeah, that says everything is a, science, a poison or a remedy. The dose just makes the difference. So uh, as we go forward, we really, it would be great that we maintain the science-based and really the science should be the first decisive factor before the political uh, elements. I want to bring in Tatiana in just a second, but a question for you uh, first, uh, Martina. Uh, Bernd asks, is the essential use concept only being advanced in order to dispense concrete assessments under the guise of simplification? Martina, is the essential use concept only being used to dispense concrete assessments pretending to be simplification? That's a question for uh, probably for the commission. <laughs> okay, we'll bring that back in, in yeah, a moment then. I would say, Satyani, we, go ahead. We, let me say, let me say what, what we see. We, we've done this um, impact assessment. Yeah, Ricardo has done this impact assessment on the qualitative assessment of essential use on the fragrance industry. And, and you know, for, for them, it's the, you know, the, the, it's all the justification for the legitimacy of the concept is is that it simplifies things, yeah, and it uh, it provides you know more guidance. But the reality of it is it complicates things in other areas. It may simplify in one area, but everything is interconnected these days. So what looks like a simplification up front has knock-on effects and spillover effects on uh, another area downstream. So. Uh, it, it's, you need to look at it holistically in order to really assess, you know, whether this, introducing this concept would simplify. Our view is it's very, very complex and we're, you know, it will, it's very difficult to manage going okay, forward. Point well made. Um, we have a bunch of questions for Otto in just a second, but Tatiana first, you wanted to reply. Yes, I wanted to appeal also uh, to the responsibility of, of, of some companies because we are saying, yeah, it's not possible to ensure 100% uh, safety and so on. I mean, there is a way uh, to be close to that, which is not using very hazardous chemicals. And uh, bisphenol A was designed to be an, an hormonal disruptor. Uh, so industry know since the design phase that it could uh, alter hormones uh, system. So they knew it was toxic. When EFSA came out, came out with this uh, reduction of safety levels or uh, daily uh, tolerance intake, uh, it wasn't a surprise. We all knew uh, since decades that bisphenol A was a very problematic chemical. Same with PFAS. PFAS was known by industry and scientists since the 1960s that it was a very problematic chemical and this didn't stop many companies to add in PFASes to frying pans, uh, uh, dental floors and so on. Even the Asian Greeks uh, knew that lead was poisonous and was neurotoxicant uh, and still it didn't stop companies to add lead in paints, in uh, ammunition and, and you name it, even in jewelry. Uh, so 
Yeah, of course. Why saying, yeah, don't worry, we have everything under control. Uh, it, it, we, we cannot trust this anymore. That's why we need a generic approach to really don't allow these chemicals anymore in everyday products. And then we will not have regrettable surprises in the future. I do. I've always found it amusing that people worried about lead and, and ammunition. Is that, uh, if that lead's coming into contact with you, the, the least of your concern is poisoning. So, um, Otto, we have a bunch of questions. We try and give quick answers to these as best you can. Um, one from Malik. Uh, we now have a study on the essential use concept. One of the key questions remains in which regulatory framework will this concept be used and how? We've heard of a potential commission communication in the EUC. How will it be used in REACH, for instance? Thank you, Malik. Yeah, well, oh, uh, you, I think yeah. it will be will be used in reach that's uh, that's uh, definite and uh, i think we are going to use it uh, as the criterion for any generic restrictions uh, for the specific restrictions and for authorizations uh, we are also using it as a supporting criteria to the existing criteria uh, what concerns other uh, pieces of legislation, it's more difficult for me to say where we will end up. We are still having discussion on certain pieces of, uh, of legislation. We are having other pieces of legislation uh, like biocides, which have been using uh, essentiality for a long time as a criterion. So also there you find essentiality uh, as a criterion. We are also working on uh, a communication on the on the concept which should also provide further clarification uh it's uh, in the last stages i can't really say when it will come out uh, whether it's before okay. summer or probably rather after summer okay thank you you nailed it for another question from another tatiana who asked exactly uh, that so uh, let's go to another question this one's for Otto or marco uh marco you take this first uh, medicine is from pierre uh, sultana Medicines are clearly essential, as the European Medicines Agency is responsible for those products. Could the fact that medicines must be evaluated by the EMA be used as a way to exclude medicines from reach and avoid ECHA ruling under the EMA? Uh, it's from uh, Pierre, he's with Animal Health uh, Europe. So who's responsible, I think, is the essence of this as well. Marco? No, I, I could just go back to the study of the essential uses and actually the essential use study is saying severe health conditions. So I think that there are two categories of, 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 of meds, the one for severe and the one for non-severe health conditions. So if this has a purpose, this criteria in an essential use study, we will have a differentiation here. For me, it doesn't make sense. And I hope we're going to be very pragmatic here to add there? Uh, well, the final medicinal products are not subject to reach. So this is okay. medical uh, legislation which has different uh, uh, context, but uh, there are, of course, uh, products which end up in medical uh, uh, products in the end. So uh, those are, um, are subject to, to reach, but certainly essentiality will play a role in there, which doesn't mean that uh, there are no cases where we might have alternatives uh, that work as well. And uh, in, in those cases, I could still imagine that we're ending up in uh, requiring change. Okay, we may have covered this a little bit. Uh, the question is, who will decide on essentiality? Who will decide what's an acceptable loss of performance or culturally uh, relevant use? Otto, quick answer on that. Uh, I can't give you an answer on that. This is a key 
question is probably the most important question and that keep, still keeps okay. us busy. We are still deciding on uh, the governance. Okay, thank you. Uh, from Claudia, does the essential use concept take into account the entire life cycle? Tatiana, maybe you want to have a go at this. Uh, does the essential use concept take into account the entire life cycle I, beyond the use phase to enable safe recirculation of materials or safe disposal? Uh, well, I, I guess that's my view, what it is asked there, uh, rather than the knowledge and what it will con be considered, because I don't know. Um, but I think uh, the generic approach goes beyond that. The generic approach tries to avoid this lengthy and costly and burdensome process of proving the exposure of uh, chemicals along the whole life cycle, but assuming that uh, um, very toxic chemical in, in everyday products uh, may have an exposure uh, at any time in the life cycle uh, from manufacture to use to uh, waste disposal. So, and that's a fact. I mean, chemicals uh, are, doesn't, don't disappear. <laughs> they just uh, move uh, from one place to the other uh, in the environment. So at the end of the day, exposure it's always there uh, and cannot be uh, guaranteed uh, the contrary. Okay, thank you. And so we have a question, Otto, uh, maybe this for you. You mentioned, it's from Daniela, you mentioned hydrogen. Will you consider all renewables essential use as they are key for reaching the twin transitions? That's an interesting question. If you get extra yeah, points uh, for uh, having a, a renewable toxic product rather than a, a, a non-renewable toxic product? Well, I, I think here uh, it's uh, it's a double question. Uh, that means what are the risks that that are related to those uses? And here we're talking about industrial uses. We're not talking about consumer products. So uh, uh, the risks are an important uh, decision-making element. And the second uh, question is uh, uh, how critical the use is. And... Uh, uh, I think even for the most critical use, if we have suitable alternatives, of course, we want them eventually to be uh, implemented. But uh, in the time to uh, market maturity of the alternatives, we will be, of course, be much more tolerant for such uses where there is a need to use uh, the substance in the, in the meantime. So if we need investment security for a plant that allows us the transition to happen five years earlier. Well, I think we will take that into account. Uh, and investment security also means that you can uh, continue marketing the substance uh, sometime uh, that allows uh, kind of um, amortization of the investment, uh, even if in the meantime an alternative becomes available. But that doesn't mean that this derogation will be there forever. Uh, eventually, we want uh, also to have hydrogen production, for example, to be uh, as environmentally friendly uh, as, as, as we can. Okay, thank you. Martina, from what we've heard during this discussion, is, is your impression more positive or more negative uh, from this discussion in terms of uh, your industry, fragrance industry as well? And, you know, do you have a sense that the political, technical, and cultural elements are going to be addressed well um, by uh, this uh, new change to, to the regulation? 
from our industry's perspective, we do need to differentiate the two levels. One is the higher level debate of how what's said in the CSS that this concept will be applied to across policy areas. And, you know, we, somebody mentioned the medical field or pharmaceutical, which are essential. So we have two challenges. The, the first is the wider debate and how this concept will actually be translated into law across policy areas. I am, I, I think a lot more dialogue, a lot more discussion need to take place to understand the concept better and to, to define it in a better way. And this that needs to happen, this dialogue needs to happen across policy areas. Now here we talk in the, the narrower concept of REACH and Otto just said essentiality will be featured in REACH and in the REACH revision. So here it is, uh, it's in one policy area and it's seen in a much narrower context and here, from our industry's perspective, uh, we would like to see this recognition of the cultural heritage and the cultural factors that are uh, very important in this. And we would like to work with the Commission and policymakers to get the criteria uh, in, a, in a good way for all the stakeholders. Okay, a quick comment on this from Marco and Tatiana, then we're going to go to our wrap-up. Uh, from everyone as well. Marco, same kind of approach, too much ideology, too much politics, not enough technical side. How do you see this after this conversation? I think it's very political. The whole essential use concept is very political. And I don't believe it is going to make uh, chemical legislation, chemical regulation simpler. Uh, and I don't believe that, for example, also because uh, Otto mentioned something where the Commission is also taking its inspiration from, and that's the bicycle product regulation. The biodecidal product regulation is a very good example of how you can overpack um, processes. So basically, in that regulation, we are not able to stick to any of the important deadlines. So what is happening there? We have postponed the most important deadline, the evaluation of the active substances for 10 years until 24. We're discussing now to postpone it again. And that shows it's not working in such detail. It shouldn't be micromanagement. And I think essential use can drift into micromanagement. And that's, okay, we're, that's the trap. We're, we're tight on time. Just quick uh, comment on this from Tatiana, and then we're going to wrap up. Tatiana, ideology too embedded here? Too much politics? Well, I don't think it's a ideological or a philosophical issue. It's purely a political issue. Uh, well, I wouldn't say purely, but I, I, there are these two parts of technical and political decision making. But this is this, this is not that different from the current situation. Um, for restrictions, we have a technical scientific part that informs the decision makers to take a political decision. And this is uh, the same that is going to be applied. I, I don't see that it would be that different. And if applied well, I think it can improve the system, which has been proven to be uh, slow and ineffective uh, to, to regulate chemicals. Thank you, Tatiana. Um, 30 second wrap up from everybody. Uh, let's start with uh, Marco, your key takeaway for today. It's gonna become interesting. And I think that when we look at the worker protection legislation, we are setting occupational exposure limits with the 
with the parliament, with the council, when we discuss and the reach essentiality, we are doing that with a simplified legislative procedure comitology. That doesn't, it, it, there is a bit, of, that it's a bit out of balance. Okay. I think we're Thank going you. very far with the essentiality discussions. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Martina, 30 seconds. Yes, uh, what I said in the beginning, the concept is very complex, highly complex, and it's not mature yet enough to legislate across policy areas. So we have three principles that need to also work here. Precautionary principle was mentioned, dominates the debate, but proportionality principle would, I would like uh, to see that evaluated a little bit more. And then the innovation principle and how all of these feature together in better regulation. Because the interinstitutional agreement, the better regulation, we didn't even touch upon. It's there, the tools are there, but they could be used better to achieve a better outcome for everybody. Thank you, Martina. Tatiana, 30 seconds. Yeah, we see the essential use uh, concept not only as a regulatory tool, but also as an important guidance for companies on which uses are not acceptable to society. Um, these uses have no future and imply a risky business, as investors has already shown. Uh, so for us, it's not a threat, but an opportunity to, for green innovation by preventing regrettable uses of the most harmful chemicals. So it is future-proof innovation that would place the EU industry in a global leader position, not business as usual. Thank you. Otto, 30 seconds, last word. Well, uh, in looking at uh, how the Montreal Protocol dealt with essential use, uh, I have to conclude that they have done a pretty good job in defining the criteria. But of course, everything helps uh, depends on how it is actually implemented. The big challenge for us is to get things done in the best way possible. And the two are sometimes a bit contradictory. Of course, uh, you can do a, a very thorough analysis uh, and you will be able to further improve the analysis and the decision making but you will not get things done so the ch challenge for us is to combine the two in the best way possible and uh, here uh, we need to to uh, to be creative uh, to to find a combination which is not just a bit left or right but which is better and that is really in identifying better what's for us. And I think here the criticality and necessity can help. What is not for us, uh, the technical analysis, their essential use concept will not help. We need to have other mechanisms to, to get people going and uh, to find proper solutions that can help all of us. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks to Nicola Institute uh, for their support for the program today. To our studio team, uh, Bonja, Zoran and Malta, and to our events team, I left this program uh, by Shifra. We appreciate all the hard work. You don't see them, but I'm looking straight at them uh, right beside me. And I wish you a good day. If you're still interested in the environment, we have another program on this afternoon on a circular economy. You can go to the event's website and probably still register for that, but join us online for that. And uh, I wish you a good day. Take care. I'm Brian McGuire.